Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 89 and verse 7. Psalm 89. I want to move through several landmarks quickly and trust the Lord to bless our hearts to be convicted by them and to commit ourselves to keep them. I want to deal with one that we can call reverence. Reverence in the worship of God. It's nearly extinct. Churches opt for casual worship, contemporary worship, come-as-you-are worship. They add just about any form of entertainment or fables that will keep the unregenerate coming and the crowd growing. There's a reason churches grow. There's a reason there are mega churches. It's because they have changed the gospel to the go- another gospel that Paul warned against, that preaches another Jesus that he warned against, and has another spirit. There's a reason for their growth. That isn't just us wishing we could grow like them because we could grow like them. We have enough musical talent in this church, enough creativity, and enough zeal that we could start a mega church if we wanted to compromise everything there is about New Testament worship. Just try to imagine the different players we have in this church. We could put together quite a praise band and a, and a, and a situation that would attract the unregenerate and carnal Christians could come in and get their foot tapping and go home and not a thing done for their souls. Their souls are to be fed by spirit and by truth, and it's found in the Word of God. We preach the Word. That's the purest form of entertainment that's ever provided in a church. And Lord, help us stay with it. Psalm 89 and verse 7. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. Not just in our hearts, not just at home, not just when we are thinking upon His terrible judgments, but when we come together in the assembly, God is to be feared. The God that we worship is a great, glorious, and dreadful, and terrible God are the words the Bible describes Him with. And we want to keep Him in that place. We want to continue to describe Him that way. But when we come here, God is greatly to be feared. Not a little, but greatly to be feared. We want to worship Him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. What book of the Bible is that from? Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. And to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. We want to reverence the God of heaven. We want to lift Him up. We want to pray soberly, sing soberly, talk soberly, preach soberly, and keep our minds focused on the sobriety of God's Word as it reveals to us this holy and dreadful God that we serve. We do not want to compromise that. They've compromised it in every way possible. Look at 1 Corinthians 14 for another quick reference on this point. I've preached on this before. I've preached on all the attributes of God's nature. This is simply a reminder. For anyone listening, I'm not trying to prove my points. I'm trying to remind us of things God wants us to remember. 1 Corinthians 14.40 Let all things be done decently and in order. Every church assembly should be decent and in order. And if you were to read 1 Corinthians 14, you would know what he meant by that. Women aren't supposed to be talking. Women aren't supposed to be asking questions. Prophets are not supposed to be talking two at a time. If they speak in tongues, no one 
should speak in tongues without an interpreter, and that was when tongues existed in the world. And they haven't existed for 1,936 years. And he describes what he means by orderliness. If one prophet, prophet is giving a word of wisdom, and that word of wisdom is entirely different than any charismatic preacher on earth today understands it, but if he's giving one before there was a finished New Testament, and another man had something to say, he was to hold his peace because the spirits of the prophets are subject unto the prophets. God would never cause anyone to make a scene or a disturbance in an assembly. They never laughed in the Spirit. They were never slain in the Spirit. They never had a laughing revival. They were never drunk in the Spirit. They soberly would get up and give a word of wisdom because they didn't have a finished New Testament. And when one man had run his course in five minutes, he would sit down and the next man would take up. And maybe only go three. Because they had the partial gift of knowledge. But everything they did was orderly and decently done because they're worshiping a God that demands reverence. When you entered His presence, you entered it carefully. You entered it on His terms and His terms alone. And you worshipped Him the way He had defined His worship to take place. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in a different landmark. Let's always keep the worship in this church reverent. Is the landmark that we have already left. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and I want to read verse 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. Only in the Lord. Marriage is to be in the Lord. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 7 last night, it said it plainly enough. Don't give your sons to their daughters and don't take their sons for your daughters. No intermarriage with pagans. No intermarriage with those that worship God differently. This is a an ancient landmark set up by our fathers that we must defend and we must keep. In most churches today, they have let this one go because fathers no longer have the authority or the conviction to tell their children, no, you can't marry that person. Because today there is this belief that as long as you love this other person, whatever they mean by that word, it's not found in the Bible the way they mean it except in the prostitute of Proverbs chapter 7. The adulteress of Proverbs chapter 7. Because that infatuated feeling of lust for another person is not the love of the Bible. The love of the Bible is desiring to help a person of the opposite sex and lead them as your spouse to serve God more perfectly. That's love. Love is putting up with all of the things that that person does that irritates you. It is not the infatuated feeling of lust. But fathers don't have the conviction of the courage anymore. And we must have the conviction of the courage. We must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves in promoting godly young people for our children to think about, look at, have social activities with that are carefully planned so that they have their minds always on finding someone that fears the Lord, loves the Bible, loves Jesus Christ to be their spouse. You know, most Christians today think that as long as you're not marrying a Muslim, a Hindu, or a Jehovah's Witness, you've kept the verse. But that's not nearly good enough. Oh yeah, the average Baptist doesn't care as long as you marry a Methodist. I mean, what's the difference? The Methodists don't care if you marry a Baptist. Baptists don't care if you marry a Presbyterian. But listen, there's false doctrine and false worship involved. That is not good enough for the Bible. 
to be in the Lord is not to be in the Lord because you mouth His name. It's not to be in the Lord because the Almanac says this other party is a Christian denomination. It's someone lined up with following the New Testament of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to stick with. And this is how hard we're going to stick with it. And this has been taught before, so this is nothing new. If you as a father bless the marriage of your child to someone that does not follow the Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament as we understand it, you will be excluded. It is your responsibility. If your child, after you bless the marriage to a believer in this church, if your child and or that spouse were to leave this church, you will not be excluded because then they will be on their own. They will be excluded for forsaking the faith once delivered to the saints. But if you endorse, bless, attend, help, support, agree with them marrying someone that is not following the New Testament, that is not good enough. We will consider you a heretic and someone who is turned against the word of the Lord that says we marry in the Lord. Amen. Your choice. That's why you better put your minds to it now and hit your knees with your wife and beg God for God-fearing spouses for your children. It is time for you to be thinking and planning about each one of your children. And if there are children that fear the Lord that are around their age, for you to set your eye on and for you to pray for and for you to do what you can to grease the skids so that your children marry in the Lord. There is no way that we can hold to the ancient landmarks that the fathers have set if we let our children marry those that only keep a quarter of them. How is that defending the ancient landmarks? You say, well, that doesn't make the audience wide enough for my children to find spouses. That's your fault. That's your fault. The audience is wide enough because it's a God big enough to bring anyone your children need if your children are worth marrying. If your children are worth marrying because they fear the Lord, there will be found for them spouses that also fear the Lord. If your children are weak in that category, there will be few found in this church by the grace of God. And that's the way that it should be. You know, throughout the Bible, look at the trouble that men got into by marrying the wrong woman. I don't care whether it's Samson or whether it's Solomon. But the warnings of Deuteronomy were so carefully laid out. Do not marry the daughters and the sons of these other nations that are around you. Do not have anything to do with them. They will be a snare to your soul. They will take your children down. And we must live the same way. If these ancient landmarks are God's commandments, and we have been through about 35 so far, if these are God's commandments, we cannot marry outside of these commandments. We, we want children, both spouses, keeping these commandments with grandchildren keeping these commandments right. and to perpetuate a godly seed in the earth because the Bible says so. And if we truly love our children, we're going to want them to marry this kind of a spouse because it's the only way they can even have the potentiality of true happiness. Right. Because true happiness is in loving the Lord together and following Him. Turn to Psalm 107, another landmark. You say you should spend more time on the one you were just on. Go listen to two tapes, three hours in total, entitled Marriage Only in the Lord. It's all been dealt with. Every verse in the Bible that's germane to the point, it's already been dealt with, already defined. There's an outline on the Internet, and you can find it there. This is not to prove the point. This is to remind us of the point. 
there is no way that we are going to keep this church together and keep your family together as a God-fearing family tree if you're letting members of that tree marry the members of other trees that don't give a rip. And most churches, most so-called Christians today, don't give a rip. If just because someone says they're a Christian, that makes them good enough, then a Roman Catholic's good enough, because that's 1.1 billion out of the 2 billion Christians in the world. How in the world can a Catholic be a Christian? In the sense of the New Testament. They're not even close. Look at the paganism they believe in. Eating a cracker God? Mary worship? Purgatory? Are you kidding me? Extreme unction with holy water on somebody who's dying? That's all paganism. I don't care what they call themselves, and neither should you. A name is nothing. Doctrine and practice is everything. Psalm 107, another landmark. And this was not planned for this morning. Not planned. I've had this down for weeks. Since I walked through the little city of Georgetown, and the Lord smiled upon me, and put a fire in my heart about this whole series. But just listen to it and see if the Lord hasn't been merciful to us today. Psalm 107 and verse 41. Psalm 107, 41. Yet setteth he the poor on high from affliction and maketh him families like a flock. I want to mention a landmark. And again, I'll say it for the last time. I, I know I said that the second time. This is the third time. There's an area of liberty. God hasn't told you how many children you should have, but you should have a decent-sized family because the Bible says it's a blessed thing and a good thing and obtains the reward of the Lord. Therefore, that's, those are some strong hints that we want to head in the direction of some large families. Right. Psalm 107.41 says, He takes the poor on high from affliction and makes him families like a flock. I was once a rebellious 17-year-old teenager that was the loneliest person on planet Earth when there were three and a half billion. The loneliest. And he took an afflicted soul, a poor soul, a rebellious soul, a foolish soul, and set him in a flock. And my flock got a little bit larger today by the grace of God, and I didn't plan it for Psalm 107 today. And you, you, you children that are growing up, you young adults, it is wonderful to have a large family. Right. Let's go read some more about it. Psalm 127. Psalm 127. If the Lord hints at something, we want to grab it and run with it. No, there isn't a commandment that you need a baker's dozen. Psalm 127, look at verse 3. Lo, lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. What a family! It's growing numerically, and they fear the Lord. They love each other. What a powerful unit that God has put together in a thing called the family. It starts with a father and a mother, and it starts with lots of little children, lots of arrows. What good is a mighty man if he's only got one arrow in his quiver? You say, well, it's a straight arrow. It's a sharp arrow, but it's only one arrow. You know, the Lord is referring to a mighty man. Let's have children as the Lord gives the opportunity to have them. Psalm 128, right below it. Blessed is every one that feareth the Lord, that walketh in His ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Here's the man that fears the Lord. Verse 3. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Thy children like olive plants round about thy table. 
Behold, thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion. Thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children and peace upon Israel. Amen. That's what men ought to aim for. We want to promote fatherhood. We want to promote motherhood in our young people, in our children. It's How about a family tree that fears the Lord, Lewis? Just think about it. Get yourself a woman that fears God and helps you teach them the fear of the Lord and then have children that fear the Lord. What a mighty little army you can have. All from you and your loins, brother. That's just what the Bible says. You can have a godly seed if you'll marry a godly woman. It's got to start right there. And then being a church that preaches the whole counsel of God. What an opportunity. They'll come into this world thinking you're God. When you enter the room, your low voice is going to shake their spleen. They're going to tremble when they see when they feel being held by a monster. The Lord gives them to you that way, to bring up in the fear of the Lord. It starts with a woman. It starts with your own heart. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. A mighty man with a whole quiver. He can just keep pulling. Keep pulling. Keep pulling. His children can stand in the gates with his enemies. And the enemies see, whoa, they have quite a few. I think we'll just go on home. You know, they don't want to fight with a family unit that's, that's built like that. Right. The point being, in 1900, the average family in America had seven children. In 2006, the average family in America has 1.2 children. Now, what's happened? I didn't make up those numbers. Those are real numbers. What has happened? The ancient landmark has fallen by the wayside that children are a blessing. They're the reward of the Lord. They're His heritage. And a man who's got his quiver full of them is a blessed man, a great man, a mighty man, and a man who can accomplish something for the kingdom of heaven. This does not mean that those who have difficulty conceiving children are included in this. This this is a passage with a general rule. And that should be understood by everyone. I mean no harm to anyone. The exceptions do not nullify the rule. The rule is this is what God says is good in a blessed state and a happy man. Our, our country says it's not happy, it's not blessed, because then I can't do as many things myself because I'm too selfish to have children and give my life to them. We don't want to think that way. We want to think the Lord's way. Let's turn back to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, once the Lord gives you those children, what do you do with them? Do you raise them or do you train them? You raise vegetables, but you train children. You may raise puppies, but you train children. Psalm 34 and verse 11. Look at David. Look at this precious verse. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That's what a father should do. Generating children is absolutely of no consequence whatsoever. Every animal, every bird, every fish is able to do that. Generating a child sexually, biologically, means nothing. Dogs do it. Strays do it. It means nothing. You're not a man. You're not anything. You're a loser. You've denied the faith and you're worse than an infidel if you don't take those children as gifts from God and teach them the fear of the Lord. Come here, my children, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That was David. He had some stories to tell about how the Lord had delivered him. Can you imagine being David's boys? He didn't do a very good job, did he? And we know he didn't, and we're told he didn't. But at least at this moment, he was trying to. What stories he could tell of how the Lord had delivered him out of the, out of the paw of a bear, and out of the paw of a lion, out of the hands of Goliath, out of the hands of Saul, 
out of the hands of Doeg the Edomite, out of the hands of Nabal, and so on and so forth, the Lord had delivered him. And he taught his children the fear of the Lord. And that's, that, that is an ancient landmark. Fathers teaching their children. Look at Isaiah 38. Isaiah chapter 38. Isaiah 38. Yes, we do. Turn the pages. We do look at the Word of God. We add verse to verse. We compare Scripture with Scripture. Just as we're supposed to. Lord, help us stick to it. This is Hezekiah thanking the Lord for 15 more years being added to his life. Isaiah 38, 19. The living. The living. He shall praise thee as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. That is God's order right there. Let's not let it fall apart. In most homes in the last few years, few decades, the woman has been the spiritual leader. She gets the children to Sunday school. She sends them to Sunday school or she takes them to Sunday school. The father is the breadwinner, whatever that means. He's the breadwinner. That means he's just a slave that goes and earns the bread to put in the table while the mother is the spiritual leader and the instructor of the children. And that's not the way God set up the family unit. The father is to be the teacher of the children. Truth is conveyed from the father to the children. Women are too easily deceived about knowing what is truth and what isn't truth. The Bible tells us that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. God, God built a patriarchal society. And we want to keep it a patriarchal society by emphasizing fathers training these children. Especially if you have a number of them, like the Bible told us to in the previous landmark, this landmark is train them, teach them, build their lives on thinking the way God thinks, thinking according to the Bible about everything they face in life. There is no wisdom outside this book. You can't learn it anywhere else. There's no school, there's no military, there's no books, there's no place you can go to learn anything that is worth knowing. Everything that is worth knowing is right here. Everything else is vain thoughts. I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. We started with that this morning. Psalm 119 and 113. And we want to stay with it. And we have to teach our children that. We don't turn them over to the school system because the school system doesn't teach them the fear of the Lord. We don't turn them over to the Sunday school system. The Sunday school system doesn't teach them the fear of the Lord. It teaches them how to use Elmer's glue on flannel graph figures and cutouts and how to drink milk and eat graham crackers during church. Instead of being in the house of the Lord and knowing that there is some man up front that's holding a black book and he thunders. And my parents listen to him very carefully. And though I don't know what he's saying, I know that my parents get very serious when we go to church that the man up there must be some important man from God and he thunders from the Bible and it changes my parents' lives. And these little kids grow up. That is the fear of the Lord. And then when they get older, they come and sit in the same church and do it with their children. And the better we do that, the more we teach our children the fear of the Lord. Why in the world would we bring children to this world if we're not going to teach them the fear of the Lord? Do you know why the Bible says, Thou shalt beat him with a rod? Thou shalt beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from hell. Hell. An early and untimely death. The grave and hell itself in that when you teach your children and train them in the fear of the Lord, you are holding them back from sinning. You can't give eternal life to your child, but you can hold them from an untimely death and keep them back from being judged by the magistrate, from being killed by terrible friends, 
for being killed out of jealousy by or revenge of a jealous husband, being killed by accidental death by a fool, being killed by disease that only comes to those who are engaging in immoral activities. On on the list goes. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. If thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt deliver his soul from hell. You can save him from an early death. That's why we discipline our children. It's not to hurt them. It's not to help us. It's to help them and to fear God. It's a landmark. And it's going away. We can drive around our county and any county in America and it's got a sign that says, kids, you can't beat them. Well, what do we do with that sign when the Bible says, kids, you must beat them? And kids, go ahead and beat them when they start crying. Don't spare for their crying. To beat them early. It says betimes in a King James Bible. When the Bible says that, what are we going to do? Are we going to believe this or are we going to believe them? The results speak for themselves. They've had their way for the last 50 years and look at the results. But that's not how we measure things anyway. Moses got water out of a rock that he smote instead of speak to. We measure it by the Bible. And the Bible says if you love your child, you're going to spank them. But the Bible doesn't use that word. The Bible says you're going to beat them. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth. Now that's a pretty tough weapon, isn't it? Scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. That's what the Lord wants us to do with our children so that these arrows that the Lord is giving us in our quiver are straight and true, can be shot at a mark and will go to that mark. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You have limited time with them. Those little children are an opportunity, not a burden. They're a privilege, not a pain. Love those moments with them. I'm only 49. I've made enough mistakes in my time. I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back. So all you little young guys, I'll go, I'll go toe to toe with you on knowing any subject. But do not defy me when I tell you take advantage of these young years and teach them the fear of the Lord. Do not argue with me. You're arguing with the God of heaven. Amen. And I wish I could go back and do a better job. Every parent does. Every parent looks back and says, we did some things well. Some things we could have done better. Thankfully, the Lord's able to make up the difference. When you show up and someone's looking for a feast and you only give them a few loaves and fishes, He's able to multiply the meal. I'm thankful to the Lord for that. Lord, continue to multiply. Oh, let's train these children God's given us. Fathers, you're the ones responsible. It's not your wife's job. It's your job. You be the spiritual leader of them. Don't let them grow up and think that you've never taught them anything spiritually about the fear of the Lord. You're a worthless father. Worthless. Their best thing will happen when you're feeding the dandelions. That'll be the best thing for them to where they can have some good godly influence if you're not doing that for them at home right now. You have that little kingdom at your address. You are the head and the king of that kingdom. Your wife is your queen. But while you've got that little kingdom, you better be using it to teach your children to fear the Lord, to love the Bible, to love Jesus Christ, to exalt Him, and to live according to these landmarks starting right at home. Turn to Ephesians 5.19. Let's go to another landmark. These are just reminders. We want to have large families if God will bless us. We want to train those children in those large families. When we come into this church, we want to sing certain kinds of songs. 
Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19. Ephesians 5.19 Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's what we want to do. Colossians chapter 3 says the same thing, but there's a few new words, so let's look at it. Colossians 3.16, it's worth seeing the difference. Ephesians 5.19 was speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, without preaching a whole sermon and just taking a couple of minutes, let's talk about the kind of music that this church better keep here. How do we judge what is acceptable music to God and what is unacceptable music to God? The music that's being performed in most churches today is unacceptable. How do we know it's unacceptable? Because of what it's associated with and the effects and consequences of it. You're going to know a prophet, a false prophet, by his fruits. All you got to do is look at the effect of their music. It doesn't lead people to be spiritually minded. It doesn't lead them to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. It leads them into a bunch of mayhem, foot stomping, hand clapping, and that is not what we're going after. You can go to any little bar and get that. When we come into the house of the Lord, we want our souls stirred up. Not our feet stirred up. We don't want our rhythm stirred. We want our regenerated heart stirred. We want our spirit lifted, our heart elevated, our mind elevated out of the things of this world and into the things of heaven. That's why it's done to the Lord, in the name of the Lord, with grace from your hearts, not with rhythm from your feet, not with rhythm, rhythm from a drum set. It's grace. Okay? It says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms. We have a whole set of them. We have a hymnal in the Bible, a Psalter, if you will. 150 Psalms. If we go look at the words of those Psalms, they are very sober. They're very godly. They're very uplifting. They're very deep. They're melancholy. They're reflecting. They're musing. They're meditating on the things of God and serving Him. Sometimes they're joyful. And when they're joyful, they are joyful. The Lord liveth, as we just sang. But look at it's always the Lord. And it's coming out of the, the grace that is in our hearts. It doesn't come out of a box, a drum set, a piano, an organ. It doesn't come out of stomping your feet. It comes out of grace in your hearts, attached to words that are scriptural, directed toward the God of heaven. And we have to protect that. Because we could be an a cappella church, rejecting instruments, and reduce ourselves to the 7-Eleven music that is so popular in certain places. What is 7-Eleven music? It's singing seven words eleven times. All that is is the vain repetition of the heathen. We could reduce ourselves to little jingles. Amy Grant and all the rest of those people that don't fear God. How do I know that Amy Grant doesn't fear God? Just look at her life. Look at her testimony and look at what she believes and look where she goes to church and look who she divorces and how long she's been having an affair with the man she's marrying after the one she divorced. It's not hard to figure out. Amy Grant does not sing Christian music. Look at the people that go to her concerts. Look at the people that buy her CDs. You can't listen to that garbage and be a spiritually minded Christian. It's not designed for that. Amy Grant knew she wasn't good enough to compete with the world, so she picked her market niche of Christians who like contemporary music. And that's how she makes her living. There's no there's no science to that. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. There are artists that pick the niche 
of Christian contemporary music for a reason. They're not good enough to compete with the world and they don't want to come and join us because they don't fear the Lord enough. And music does reflect your soul. It is the language of the soul. If all it does is get your foot tapping, that's nothing. That's what you do in bars. That's what you do at rock concerts. Go look at the lives. Go look at the testimonies. Go look at the lyrics of Bill Gaither and men like that. Go to a Best Buy. Go look in the Gospel section. There isn't any gospel in there. Any gospel that's in there is there by default because they stole some of our hymns. Anything they've written is so pitifully weak. And I'm referring to 98% of it. It's not God-honoring because it doesn't line up with the Psalms. It doesn't line up with grace in your heart. Speaking and teaching and admonishing because there's no depth to it. When we sing, we better be speaking, teaching, and admonishing. It better start with grace here. It doesn't start with grace here. And it doesn't start with grace here. And it doesn't start with grace here. It starts with grace here. And then it's attached to words that are beautiful and line up with the Word of God and it's directed to the glory of God and it's directed outwardly to teach and admonish. It's sober, instructive, deep words. Church music has degenerated generation by generation. From doctrinally deep, spiritually sober, spiritually correct lyrics to frothy jingles with little substance and late melody. The Psalms guide us. And the matter of all singing should be close to the Psalms. The topic may be different. The topic may be spiritual songs. The topic may be hymns of praise directly to God. But the matter, the organization, the depth of the words should be like the Psalms. The goal is to have your heart and soul stirred toward the Lord, not your foot tapping. I may have already said this because my mind is slipping right at the moment. I think I did say this, but I'll, I guess I'll say it again to cover all bets. The first two songs, I know I said this, the first two songs we sang this morning, all people that here on earth do dwell. Where did the words come from? Psalm 100. Where did the, the melody come from? Old 100. How old is it? 500 years old. There's one little rule that you can follow 99% of the time. If the melody or the words came from the 20th century, it's not good enough. Right. Just go look at it. That should make totally good sense to you. Do you know why? Because in the 20th century, there was a total decline from Bible doctrine. How in the world do you think someone's going to write a doctrinally correct song when there's no doctrinal correction coming out of pulpits? It's not just because we want to be old. Because there's lots of things that are old that are wrong. You know, the oldest profession in the world, they say, is prostitution. But that doesn't make it right because it's old. But, but, we are to look for the old paths. And what are those old paths? That is singing and making melody in your heart with words that your mind can understand and teach other people with to give glory to God. And so we should always be thinking through that cycle, lining them up with the Psalms, looking at the effects. When you look at contemporary Christian music, all you have to do is look at the people who wrote the lyrics, look at the people who performed the melody, look at the people who attend the concerts, and the effect in the lives of those people. Just go look at it. See if they line up with the God-fearing, holy, living... Christ-loving, truth-craving, error-hating men of this Bible. 
Most of the men will have long hair. Most of the women will wear immodest clothing. And they're performing for like a nightclub act. That is not for the glory of God. The glory of God, you want to make as little of yourself as possible and as much of Him as possible. Amen. You want to sing in a congregation. You don't want to sing special music. You want to sing with a congregation. The joy of singing with, you, with all the rest of you, brother, when you just sang, The Lord liveth, blessed be our rock. Listen, you, you are stirring me up in my soul. Yes! The Lord liveth. What Lord? The Lord of the Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jehovah. He's alive. And He's alive forevermore. And He would say, Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. You stirred me up to think about Him by singing. And we were teaching and admonishing one another. Having some nightclub act is pure entertainment for the flesh. Only reprobates listen to that stuff and find happiness in it. A child of God would be miserably unsatisfied with that. He'd be starving to death with that garbage music. Look at the effect it's had. 150 years ago, there wasn't a Baptist church on earth that had an organ or a piano. 150 years ago, they didn't sing any of these jingles. Because guess what? They didn't have to worry about any songs being written in the 20th century. They were in the middle of the 19th century. And it makes a difference. Once you start down that path of contemporary Christian music, you better be watching every step you take very, very, very carefully. Because you will keep walking down and compromise doctrine, compromise methods, compromise music, compromise their lifestyles. Everything. You've got to watch it. We've got to watch it as a church. So when we come in here, we're going to look for the old paths. We're going to sing songs that have integrity, doctrinal correctness, and sobriety, and instructive material in their words, with melodies that stir our hearts and souls, not our bodies. If your body gets a little stirred on some of the ones that we sing after your soul is stirred, so be it. If you can keep the soul in front of your body, it's probably still acceptable music. But everything the world offers gets your body in front of your soul. Right. And we don't want to go, we don't go there. So let's, let's make sure that we keep our music in a godly way, that it pleases the Lord. Joyful singing of hymns is now rare. You know, people used to love to get together and sing hymns. You know, as a boy, after the evening service, once a month, all the churches in the area would get together after the evening service. You know what we would do for one hour? We would let it rip. It was called Singspiration. One hour, Sunday nights, after the evening service. Well, wouldn't you get home late and go to, go to school the next day? Nobody cared. Because right. we wanted to get together. And we would, every church, we would just rotate among churches. We would pack the place out. We would just sing. Yeah, some of them were written in the 20th century and we had pianos and organs. But the point was, that's gone now. It's special music. You go to church and you look in the, in the bulletin and it's so-and-so is going to get up and sing us a special number. Well, where's that in the Bible? Why do we need a nightclub act in here? Why do we need entertainment? Somebody just turn to another hymn and let's sing another one. Let's sing another one. Let's praise the Lord with our joint congregational singing. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's go to another landmark. Very different. We were already in Ephesians 5 with verse 19 about speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Let's come back here for another landmark. Verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. 
Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Ephesians 5, 22-24 lay out another landmark. Christian women are submissive to their husbands. That means they obey their husbands when their husbands ask them to do something, whether they want to do it or not, whether they like it or not, whether their husband has upset them or not, whether they're bitter at their husband or not. If their husbands ask them to do something, they obey and do it. That is a landmark of the Christian faith. Our fathers set that ancient landmark, and we're not going to let it be taken down. Marriage is not an equal partnership. Marriage is a husband that was made first, and a woman was made to help him. The husband was, be, was to be the ruler over the wife, and the wife is to submit and obey her husband. The wife was made for the man, not the man for the wife. All these things are taught in the Bible. They're a landmark of our church that we must defend and keep. We must defend and keep it in a godly, cheerful way so that our children grow up believing it, seeing it done in practice by a cheerful, obedient wife so that they are willing and able to go and do it themselves. It's an ancient landmark. We cannot let it be taken down. The world wants to take it down. Without saying anything on this tape, I have had to listen to and read some stuff this past week by people you know of efforts being made to take down that landmark and ridicule it. And it's the only way to have a happy family and it's the only way to please the Lord. We're going to keep it. The marriage covenant that we just reviewed at a couple's retreat a few days ago went over it in great detail. It is an ancient landmark. It's something our fathers set. The prophets and apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They taught it. They wrote it down. The Lord gave it to us in His Bible and we're going to keep it. We're not going to alter our view of marriage because the world's altering their view. Turn to Genesis chapter 24. I know I'm going very quickly. These are things we cannot let slip. Each home, each man's responsible for maintaining the proper order of authority in his household. And then we need to do that in this church. We love our wives. We love women. We're thankful to God for them. But we're going to put them in the role that God gave them. And we're going to expect from them the conduct that God requires of them. Genesis chapter 24, verse 63. I'm moving to a new landmark. Genesis 24:63. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. Now there's something in that verse that should be a landmark, but it's gone. What word is it? Meditate. What in the world was Isaac doing out in this field? Was he levitating? Was he gravitating? What was he doing? He was meditating. This is something that we do not make enough time for, but throughout the Bible, it is a noble, good, godly thing, and it will make your soul better. And it means you've got to cut enough activities out of your life to where you've got some free time to do some thinking with the Spirit of God in the Bible. Meditating. Sober, internal thinking about helpful things like God and His Word. Look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1 and verse 2. Meditating. You know, we've got so much noise. You get in your vehicle. This is what most people do and you should not do. You get in your vehicle. You punch a button to make sure there's noise in there. When you leave that vehicle, you make a mad dash for the office so that you can have their piped-in sound system giving you more noise. And then you make a mad dash back out, punch a button in your vehicle, make it to home to where there's another noise box, 
making noise, and for all the waking hours of the day, you're filling yourself with noise to keep yourself from meditating. To be meditating, you have to be quiet. Be still. And know that I am God. You can only know God by getting rid of all that noise. That white confusion coming into your ears and getting away with the precious Word of God and meditating upon it and thinking upon Him, examining your own heart and life. And you can't do that with that noise going on. And our whole society is addicted to that noise all the time. You know, there's good uses for MP3s, so don't take this wrong, brother. But, you know, they've got all these little devices now for that mad dash from the vehicle to the office. they got it covered. You've got these in. You've got these in with a wire running to your pocket so that you can keep the noise coming even for the three minutes from your vehicle in the parking lot to get to the office. Always to have that noise when the Lord says, be still and what? And know that I am God. To be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day was not listening to a bunch of garbage noise. White noise coming in your ears just adding to your confusion. John was in the Spirit. And the next thing we read about him, I heard a voice behind me. That's what, we, that's what I want for each of you. Right. To hear a voice behind you. I am the Lord. I am alive forevermore. This is the way. Walk ye in it. How do we get that? By being in the Spirit in the Lord's day and doing some meditating. Look at Psalm 1 verse 2. About the blessed man that will be like a tree. Verse 3 says it will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He'll bring forth his fruit in his season. His leaf will not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. How do you get to be a prosperous, successful man like that? Verse 2, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law doth he meditate day and night. Meditate is thinking internally, carefully, soberly, gravely, solemnly about God and His things, about the Word of God, examining yourself. You can't do it with noise. You can't do it with activity. He was walking in a field because nothing goes on in a field. A field is a boring place to be unless the Lord's there with you. Unless you've got a few verses you've memorized and you're walking through the field looking up at the clouds in the sky knowing that there's a God beyond those clouds and you're thinking about Him through those verses that you've read and about His goodness to you in your life and about how much you want to love Him, how much you do love Him, and you tell Him that you love Him because you're meditating in a field. The days that we've had over the last month, They've been so warm and beautiful. I don't have a field. I have a deck on the back of my house. And I get to go out there and sit and let the Lord embrace me with His sunshine as it comes up in the east. There's a perfect time of day. And to have my Bible and to look at some of those things and know what He's done for me and to tell Him how much I love Him. But everything in my life tears at me to keep me from doing that and everything in your life tears you to keep you from doing that. There's phones, there's emails, there's computers, there's, act, there's responsibilities and it, and it keeps us from what is very important. You know what? The Lord used to turn the lights off. Especially in the winter He turned them off early in the Northern Hemisphere. And you know, you did, you did extra meditating. There wasn't a whole lot to do. Do you know how many noise boxes there was for your grandfather? None, except his wife. And I mean that kindly. I hope nobody's offended by that. Nobody, please don't be offended. (laughs) 
red. <laughs> there weren't any noise boxes. Do you know what? When the Lord turned the lights off in the winter, guess what? You went to bed earlier. You, or you sat in your house with a candle. You sat in your house with a candle. You didn't turn the TV on. You didn't play video games. You didn't have your MP3 player. There, was no, there, there weren't movies to watch. There wasn't anything. And so you could sit there, you know, you know the picture of a person rocking on his front porch after working hard all spring, summer, and fall? Or sitting in his house, rocking, maybe with an open Bible, maybe reading a couple verses. He was doing something that our generation has lost. Right. And we want to keep some of that. I'm just, I'm just mentioning something that the Lord, the Lord tells us it's something good. And to be like David, you've got to do it. Look at 63, chapter 63 of this book. I, I know that there's some in here. I know there's a young lady that wants to be a female David. She's told me. I wouldn't mind hearing that from every single one of you. I know that many of you want to be like David. David took the time to do this thing that I'm calling meditating. Isaac did it. Isaac went to a field. Isaac didn't go to an amusement park. An amusement park is a field. It's a field that's filled with noisy machines. What do they have running through speakers everywhere in an amusement park? They're garbage noise. Yes. An amusement park. I've been over this before. Amusement means no musing. Well, that's going to get us in trouble in a second. Once in a while, maybe. Once in a while, maybe. As long as you're doing some of this musing that God expects you to do. Right. Psalm 63. Look at, the, look at these verses. Psalm 63, 6. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. I love that verse. Some of the best times I have with the Lord, my field is my bed. Because in my bed, it's too late at night for anybody to call, anybody to send me an email, and I'm not going to do anything and the lights are out. There's no electricity running in the house. And I'm in my bed. I'm alone. No one's talking to me. No one's expecting anything. And I can talk to the Lord. And I do every night. And I'm nothing. I'm nothing. But I love this verse. I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Those are during the four watches of the night, from 6 to 9, 9 to 12, 12 to 3, and 3 to 6. I meditate on thee while I'm in bed during that period of time. Look at 77. Psalm 77. We don't do, we, we don't do enough of this. The, the world has, even though we have all these labor-saving devices, the, Lord has, the, the, world, the world has got us on a treadmill who are running faster and faster and faster, thinking if I run just a little bit faster, I'll have some spare time. And we never get there. And then it, yeah, it spits us off into hell. The world's treadmill never gives you the satisfaction of achieving anything, and then it spits you into hell. We need to reject their treadmill and jump on the treadmill of the Lord. Amen. And that's to walk in a field. You say that's wasting time. You walk in a field and get your relationship right with Jesus Christ, And He can add to whatever you're doing. Prosper the work of our hands. O Lord, prosper the work of our hands. If you're in the field, building your relationship with the Lord, He'll take care of the rest. You never lose time giving financially to the Lord. You never lose giving of your time to the Lord. He'll make it up. Psalm 127, verse 2. Don't turn there. It is vain for you to rise up early, to stay up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so He giveth His beloved sleep. The Lord will take care of it. Because it says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Do you think you're going to get it done by getting up early, staying up late? No. Give the Lord His time. Only put in a reasonable amount of effort and trust Him for the rest. Wonderful salvation verses. Salvation in this world. 
Psalm 77 and verse 12. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Psalm 143. You'll forget all these landmarks unless you look at the outline. Unless I look at them. We're using this as a reminder. You know, we run too much. We, we go too many places. We need to make sure we go to the Lord and meditate, muse, and think upon Him. Look at Psalm 143.5. Now, this is a hard one. 143.5. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all Thy works. I muse on the work of Thy hands. There's muse. To muse is the same as meditate. It's to think and consider and contemplate, reflect and enjoy wonderful wonderful and good spiritual things that you're thinking about. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I love to think about and contemplate the things that you've done, Lord, the things that you've written, Lord, the things you've done for other men in old days, the things you've done for me in recent days. Meditate and muse. Lord, help us to do it. An amusement park is no musing. The Bible says that we need to do some musing. Right. Let's try to protect that. Leviticus 19, another landmark. Leviticus 19. If you read 2 Timothy chapter 3 last night, and I'm sure you've read it before, as it's listing the character traits of a wicked generation of Christians... As it lists a generation of compromising Christians, one of the things it says about them is unholy. And that's why we had reverence. One of the things it says about them was unthankful. And that's why we have one called Thanksgiving. It says of them disobedient to parents. So I have a reminder here. Children, every time your parents ask you to do something, you have an opportunity to hold up the ancient landmark of our fathers. Alex, if you don't obey your parents when they ask you to do something, then you're just going around and kicking away those landmarks that God set. And the best time to remember it is when your parents ask you to do something that you do not want to do. Do it anyway and do it cheerfully. And thank them for the privilege of holding up an ancient landmark. Think you can pull all that off? Look at this verse. Leviticus 19, 1-3. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the, children, the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. What is holiness, Lord? Ye shall fear every man his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Holiness includes fearing your mother and your father. Fearing them. Now, that fear is not servile fear of some abusive father who's going to come around and club you with a baseball bat. That fear is respectful desire toward him and reverence toward him that you do not want to displease him, but you want to keep all that he's asked you to do so that you please him with your life. You please him in your choices. It's a good fear. It's the same as the fear of the Lord in the Bible. But notice the words that the Bible chooses. And I don't care what the world says, and I don't care what Psych 101 says about child training. I care about what the Bible says. Amen. 
ye shall fear every man his mother and his father. Both parents should be feared by children. Let's maintain our children obeying their parents and honoring their parents because that is a landmark that the Lord wants us to keep. While you're back here in the Old Testament, and I'm wrapping things up, Exodus, Exodus 21. I didn't tell you how many more I'd cover. I just said I'm wrapping things up. Exodus 21. What has killed 1.5 million babies per year for the last 33 years? Can you give me one word? Abortion. We hate abortion. It's unborn baby murder. We have Bible for it. We're never going to change. Exodus 21, verse 22. Exodus 21, 22. If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him and he shall pay as the judges determine. Two men are fighting and hurt a pregnant woman. She goes into labor prematurely and has a baby. Nothing bad happens to the mother. Nothing bad happens to the baby. The wife's husband gets to say what is owed by that other man for putting his wife into premature labor. And the judges will be determined the fine. The fine, the penalty of whatever it might be. Verse 23, And if any mischief follow, this is accidental. This is accidental, premature labor caused by men struggling, not by men operating on a woman and cutting their, her baby out. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. I wonder if the Lord got His point across to you in 23 through 25. So what should happen to every abortion doctor? Life for life. In the sight of God. We do not go take it. We do not take it because we do not have any civil authority because there is a separation of church and state in the way the Bible defines it. But that is what the God of heaven says about them all. And this passage is about accidental premature labor. Forget intentionally trying to kill that fruit of her womb. This is the word of the Lord. We love every word of it. Does the Bible say that it's a glory for a woman to have long hair? Every woman? Does it say that? Does it say it is a shame for a man to have long hair? It says that. Does it say that in the Bible? Do you think that might be an ancient landmark? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame to him? Therefore, our young men are going to keep their hair cut. Therefore, you girls and women, when you go get your hair cut, remember, you have an opportunity to keep an ancient landmark of our faith in a world that doesn't care anymore and that ridicules such verses as 1 Corinthians 11. But it is in 1 Corinthians 11 that is a New Testament passage that tells us it's a shame for men to have long hair and it's a glory for a woman to have long hair for her long hair is given to her for a covering. So when you're thinking about cutting your hair, think about the Bible. Think about what God wants you to do and keep it as long as you can keep it as, as attractive. And Nope, I said I wouldn't do it again. There's a, there's a degree of liberty because the Bible doesn't say you have to have hair 21 inches long. But if you're full of zeal for the ancient landmarks of our fathers, and you're a woman, and you can grow hair long, some women can't, if you can, then show the Lord some of your zeal, 
say, come up into my chariot and I'll show you my zeal for the Lord. And instead of nailing Sisera to the floor of your tent, give us a couple more inches on your hair. And it's not for us. I shouldn't have said it that way. Give the Lord. Give the Lord your hair. Matthew 19. Quickly. Quickly, please. Oh, why did I turn the page? Matthew 19. I'm not even going to listen. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees came to Jesus Christ and said, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? That was the debate in Israel in those days. Could a man put away his wife for every cause? There were two camps in the nation of Israel. Some believe that you could put away your wife if she burnt your toast in the morning. They have It's written. It's written. If she, if she salted your meat too much, you could divorce her for salting your meat too much. And the Pharisees came and they wanted Jesus to put himself into a position of taking one of the sides of that debate in the nation of Israel. And he refused to do it. All, and he wouldn't even listen to them raising Deuteronomy chapter 24 where God had allowed the Israelites to put away their wives and give them a bill of divorcement because of the hardness of their hearts. Jesus backed all the way up to Genesis chapter 2. Right. And he says, What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. How is that a landmark for us? No-fault divorces and irreconcilable differences and all those excuses that modern society has for the same kind of divorces of, the, of Jesus' day for every cause, they'll make up whatever cause they need to to get divorced and get away from one woman and get another woman. We're opposed to that. Amen. When we take a spouse in our church, and it's always been this way, we are committed to them. The Lord said, what, man hath joined, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. He ordained marriage. He ordained marriage as a permanent relationship. And so we keep it that way. So all you young people, put divorce out of your mind. Yes, there's exceptions taught in the Bible. But exceptions don't alter the rule. Exceptions are just for that. Exceptional situations. The rule for two Christians is, you're married forever. That's why I've always called it, since your earliest days, a picking someone to marry was called a 50-year decision. Yes. And you know, by the grace of God, we may live even longer than that, and so it's, it's an inadequate statement. But the point was, you're committed to that person for your lifetime. Right. The world doesn't believe that anymore. They've kicked the ancient landmark over. We keep it. We keep it. Cremation. Cremation is pure paganism. It was adopted from the Hindus and other pagan religions that burn their dead. This body has been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I've preached a whole message on it. There's a very good document on the website that you can look at. I love the Bible. The Bible tells me that Abraham went and bought a whole plot of ground to make sure he had a burial place for Sarah's body. Yes, and he mourned over it. Joseph said, don't you dare leave my bones down here in Egypt. I want my body to be embalmed, put in a box, and you carry me in the land of Canaan. God buried Moses' body Himself. God buried Moses Himself. The Lord Jesus Christ was put in the sepulcher of a rich man. His body was anointed with spices. A hundred pound weight, we're told in the Bible, and wrapped and put in that grave very carefully. They were always buried in the Bible. There's a reason for it. This is God's creation. We do not take God's creation, profane it, defile it, and adopt pagan practices in how we treat it. Jesus Christ died for your body. He died for you body, soul, and spirit. When He comes back, He is going to say, Live! And you know what? Every cemetery that's got a a child of God in it is going to be ripped open and up are going to come those elect bodies. He's going to put them back together. It doesn't matter if a worm...
crawled off and a bird ate the worm and a cat ate the bird. It doesn't matter where those cells are. The Lord's going to put them back together. Amen. It's paganism. It's Hinduism. And they justify it by saying it's convenient and cheap. Listen, if there's anyone in here and you're running out of money and you've got to bury a, a believer, I'll pay for it. The church will pay for it. I'll dig the hole. I'll do whatever it takes. We as a church are going to bury our dead. Our dead bodies. And we're going to know that their, their body is just sleeping in Jesus. Their soul and spirit return to the Lord that made them. And I wish we had a cemetery that we had to drive through and that you had to walk through to get to the front door. And if I get my fantasy to come pass, come to pass in the next five years, we will. You will walk to the front door of our meeting place and you'll walk past those of that have gone before us. And we'll remember them every day that we come to church. And when we sing the resurrection, we'll, about the resurrection, we'll be thinking about them out there. I love that practice. I don't care that a Southern Baptist preacher recently told me that a cemetery is the worst possible thing you could ever have at a church because it has no positive cash flow. That man's, that man's mind is in the wrong place. He says it's got no positive cash flow. And unless your deacons are young, they're not strong enough to go out there and set the stones back up after the hoodlums come through on a Friday night and tip them over. That was in your town, Lou. I think your sons have a new job. Saturday mornings, get down there and put the stones back up. Oh, I would love that. You know, I would love these young men in here to have to walk past me when they come in here to worship God. Even though I'm laying out there, I'll put something on my stone saying I'm watching you. And I'd... I want, I want every son to think about their father. Right. When, my, when, my, when my father goes, I'm not going to forget what he taught me. Right. It's the ancient landmarks of my father and every one of them that was right according to the Bible, I'm going to keep it anyway. And I didn't mean that to be funny. Right. I would like you young men to have to come walking past all of us old guys that have taken our journey. And to know that when you come in here, you better be living up to what God gave us. He's blessed us so abundantly. It is, it's hardly, it, 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 I don't even know how to describe it. How much truth He's shown us from His Word and conviction He's given us. Right. Paganism. Cream. How old were you in 63, brother? Sorry. 14. I was, I was seven. You were four. 1963, do you know how many Americans were cremated? 3%. Now, 63 is not a long time ago. Jeff was 14. That was just yesterday. 3%. Then the Pope of Rome said it's okay if you cremate your dead. You know what it is today? 35%. 95% Japan. 90% England. Nevada? 95%. Tennessee, 5%. Tell you anything about the character of the people that live in those two different states? There there probably isn't a Bible preacher in this. There's very few of them in the state of Nevada. But in Tennessee, there's still people that think the way the Bible taught them to think. And that is that the body is important. We don't profane it. We don't burn it like a Hindu. Lord, help us. We're not going there. No, none of you are going to be cremated. If you, have, if you have cremation in your will, we'll have to exclude you after you're dead. But we'll still do, we'll still do something. Right. 
Please take it out of your will. I'll pay for it. The church will pay for it. That's, there's no question about that matter. We all, we all knew 30, 40 years ago that anybody that was cremating their dead was crazy. They were different. They were weird. And it's not, it's not a matter of preference. It's not an issue of preference. Jesus Christ died for our bodies. He's coming for them. When I sleep, I don't want to be burned every night. Don't burn me up at night when I want to go sleep. When we put a body to sleep, we lay them down. We lay them down in a grave. They're sleeping in Jesus until the resurrection. Amen. Thank you, Lord. You know, is it right to dress up on Sundays? We dress up for a reason. We want to keep dressing up. Please dress up. I, I commend you for dressing up. I appreciate every, every effort you make to dress up for the Lord's Day. It used to be called your Sunday best. Your Sunday best. Now, all those same churches that used to say, wear your Sunday best, come as you are. Totally changed. In, in what do you say? 50? 70 years? Totally changed. Come as you are. Is it important in the Bible? Genesis chapter 35. This is the last one. There's more, but this is, this is the last one. This is an important one because you drive down the road and you see the signs. Casual worship. Drive down the road. Come as you are. Drive down the road. Contemporary worship. No, we want reverent worship and we want to do it the way God taught us. Amen. The Bible hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. The New Testament says that to worship God acceptably, acceptably you have to do it with reverence and godly fear. You are not showing reverence and godly fear by coming as you are. If the president gave you an audience, you would not go as you are. You would get dressed up for that. Every time you go for an interview, you do not go as you are. You get dressed up for that man you're meeting because you want to impress him. You're reverencing an interviewer rather than the God of heaven. Please. Show some honor to the God of heaven. Let's dress our best. Sunday best. I love that combination of words. Sunday best. Your best set of clothes was reserved for Sunday when you were going to be in the house of the Lord. We don't go overboard. We don't try to flaunt anything. Nothing like that. There's a brother in here that can tell a great story about churches that flaunt it. But I'll wait for him to tell you. I'm about to give his name, but we'll hold on here. Genesis chapter 35. Look what it says. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. God is telling Jacob, Go worship me in a place you worshipped once before. Go to Bethel. Verse 2, Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. Notice what Jacob knows something about the worship of God. We get clean. You took a bath once a year 75 years ago. I mean, once... Once a week, 75 years ago, when did you take that bath? Saturday night. And then you put on your Sunday best. Jacob knew that, and it's taught to us in Genesis 35. Now, the God of Jacob and the God of us today is the very same God. To worship Him acceptably, we want to come in here reverently. This is an important meeting between us and the Lord. Exodus 19. Same point. Exodus chapter 19. There was quite a worship service held at Mount Sinai when all the nation gathered around that mountain and it was all together around a fire and shaking and smoke and it looked like a furnace going up. The blast furnace 
of the heat coming off of Mount Sinai. If a beast so much as got close to it, he was to be thrust through with darts. Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Well, how'd the people come to worship a God like that? Exodus 19, verse 10, The Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. And be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And if you go on and read it, Moses went down in verse 14 from the mount to the people, sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he told them, be ready for the third day. It involved dressing up because every part of our being we want ready for Him. I've talked about getting ready on Saturday nights and keeping the the day holy to the Lord and being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And it's coming in here. It's an important... If we, if, listen, if I reduce to shorts, flip-flops, and a tank top, it, re, it reduces everything about us. It relaxes everything about us. Part of it is being reverent in the presence of God. It's clothes, don't, clothes by themselves don't help us get one bit closer to God. It's the whole intent, desire to please and reverence Him by dressing up for Him and being formal and sober. Sober clothing is not shorts, tank top, and flip-flops. Sober clothing is dressing up. It's the way you would dress up for a funeral. But you know what? They don't even know how to do that anymore. They don't even know how to do that. Lord, these are landmarks You've shown us in Your Word. There's more of them. But we'll trust You to show us them in good time. You young people, hear the words of David to his son Solomon. And these are my words to you. And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father and serve Him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek Him, He will be found of thee. But if thou forsake Him, He will cast thee off forever. All you young men and young ladies, Remember these landmarks. Remember the God of your fathers and the landmarks He, His Son, and the apostles of His Son have set. And let's be faithful to them and continue in them in spite of what the world and the Christian world does around us. Love the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay hold of Him by faith. Before you go to bed tonight, make sure you've taken some time to meditate and muse on Him. And when you're in those covers, meditate and muse on Him some more. And may the Lord come to you in the night watches and reveal the secret of His covenant to you.